and welcome back to a brand new episode of A Woman in AI. My name is Kim Dressendorfer and I'm a technical specialist for AI at IBM. And I'm more than happy to introduce you to someone who's literally changing the world and making the world a better place. She's a research scientist and a quantum ambassador in Bangalore, India. Let's welcome Anupama Ray. Hello, and thank you so much for being here again. We can't wait to hear, all, to hear your story. So why don't we just start it and you just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. Thanks, Kim. It's, it's great to talk to you again. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for the introduction. As you already said, I'm a research scientist. I work for IBM India Research in Bangalore. And I did my PhD in India from Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi. Uh, my PhD was around uh, building multidimensional long-term, I mean, recurrent neural networks. Uh, and I, it was mostly around the machine learning architecture and core algorithm development. Then I did a lot of uh, computer vision applications. I, I moved on to a government in the, of India project where I built a language agnostic OCR, optical character recognition system. It's in seven languages and it's still being used in several government of India offices. That, that, that was a part of my PhD work as well. Then I joined IBM research in 2017, January, and I shifted gears. I now started working on NLP. And it has been very, very fascinating ever since I do work on information extraction and uh, low resource languages, building of NLP stacks, complete NLP stacks on low resource languages. We're focusing on Indian languages again here. So it's it's exciting work that we are up to. That is amazing. I'm like, wow, that's a long list of skills you're having. I'm like, hopefully one day I can be even close to what you do. Um, was it always like your passion? Did you always imagine yourself as a kid that you're going to end up, end up at the IBM Research Center? No, no, no. So, I, I, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't even know about IBM Research, to be honest. And um, at, at my place, you know, uh, our parents sort of pre-decide what you are going to be. So as a kid, I knew that my sister has to be a doctor. I have to be an engineer. So I always knew I have to be an engineer. I had no idea what an engineer is or <laughs> what does an engineer do. All I knew is I have to be an engineer. <laughs> so that was sort of destined and I was in electronics uh, engineering I was studying and that I think I think I liked engineering um, not that I opted for it I was given that you have to do electronics engineering but I started liking it and I was very interested in doing biomedical engineering so I went on to do masters into biomedical there my uh, supervisor actually you know instructed me to build I, I was building a small little uh, very portable and uh, cost efficient ECG machine and I was doing a lot of studies on people who are recovering or doing physiotherapy. How is the recovery on their heart? So different kinds of analysis I was doing there. I was also working with uh, different sort of athletes, whereas there are swimmers or there are um, aerobic and not and aerobic exercises mostly. So he told me to do a lot because I had a lot of data. He told me to do a lot of analysis. And I was building, I was, I was training these models. I was training little support vector machines, doing a lot of uh, you know, um, algorithms. And I had no clue that's AI. I'll tell you, it was 10 years ago. And uh, I, I did not know that I'm working in something which is super hot, which is going to be a hot skill someday. And people are going to ask me about it. But I was just doing it and I was enjoying. 
so but then while doing you know whenever i would face some issues and the algorithm would not um, understand or have misclassifications i would think that you know why is it not being able to understand so i have to do something and make a better algorithm so that's how i got tempted in working or building algorithms so it has never been like you know i always knew what i have to do in life no it has always been very very small incremental steps for me and i have enjoyed the process so that's how i just started into ai and i decided that no i'll not stay in an application level if i start working on building algorithms then you know i can apply it anywhere so that's that's when i decided to go for phd into algorithms and yeah it was fun that's fascinating i love that um <laughs> like looking at all that stuff what when did you like really grab that passion and what like that passion about ai and what do you think is like the most fun of ai you know um, i think what what is more fun or uh, what keeps you so driven in wanting to do more is is the capacity that it brings you you know uh, if you if you can if you are knowledgeable in ai it capacitates you to work or solve problems that you are passionate about so it can be any problem that you feel you know i i strongly believe that ai has the potential to impact every problem around us in some way or the other it's all about you know we take some time we think about the problem we will find those bits and pieces which we in the little capacity of a scientist can solve so i i think you know that that power or that capacity is is real thrill to work that is good that you mentioned it i mean i have the same opinion like especially like when you mentioned like um that everybody's going to be affected and it. it has an, an output of it and has a, like actually like will benefit from it and i know you're working on some really specific specific things and especially like when it comes to your social work and why you actually making the world a better place do you want to tell you tell us a little bit about your newest project yeah so uh, i've been very passionate about you know one of my one of my very uh, close to heart project is mental health uh, i have been trying to do different ways to solve or to impact mental health or to bring about a change in it but uh, this this was a great opportunity that we we stumbled upon and uh, so it, it it was like uh, there are these children who are rescued from trafficking and these children have no mental health care okay so they are rescued and then 80% of the time they are retrafficked because they they find it very difficult to get absorbed in the society and in india the numbers are very scary you know there are like 0.03 clinicians for 1 million indians and when i say clinicians i mean both psychiatrists and psychologists which is which is very uh, big uh, a loss that we have and imagine this kind of a vulnerable population these are children who don't have parents who have been trafficked or who have been rescued from trafficked trafficking and are who are put into these child care institutions they definitely don't have any chance to you know actually meet a psychiatrist or meet a psychologist so what could we do about it and 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 these are our children right this i mean we have to protect them somehow this is the next generation we have to bring them back so i uh, we just thought about that you know can we identify emotional intelligence in people can an ai machine do that and it can just grade different people on basis of their listening skills or teamwork or you know how compassionate they are do they have empathy or not and then you know have them as potential lay counselor candidates they don't have to be clinically trained they don't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist they just have to be empathetic people who want to work with these children and then uh, we did, we did that work that work uh, got, i mean gathered a lot of media attention and so on and awards and 
and then we realized that okay now this one person is there sitting at child care institutions and then they have 100 kids in a in a in a child home right and some child might be more expressive but not my not have depression in that level or just have mild depression and some child might be not at all expressive and might have suicidal tendencies and behavior now if that one child you don't attend for a day that can lead to a loss of life and for a person sitting there and ha- who has to manage like 100 kids it's difficult it's it's actually difficult when when these people work on ground so then they came up with this problem that you know it's it's getting difficult for us so can you help us manage them or you know uh, have observed their behavior and give us constant feedback about them so can I, can there be an unbiased ai model that predicts depression severity so so that that's what we started building there and we of course published a lot of research papers and uh, you know we got some awards the grant of which went back to the ngo now they can scale it to 9000 childcare institutions across india so i think that that you know that that's one way of saying that you know it gives me immense satisfaction of being able to use ai back to some social good of like applications i mean that's that's groundbreaking i think that's a, that's especially a topic which is such a massive like nobody talks about topic Like nobody wants to talk about it because it it kind of hurts everyone to know that this is actually existing and it is it is a massive problem. But I'm so so glad we have people like you that are actually like working on it and like trying to use that AI to literally help those kids. Um, if you think about it, what was what was the most challenging NLP part behind it to kind of like figure out? Okay, how do you detect the depression or maybe the suicidal thought? Yeah yeah so there are there are two parts to it because this is a multimodal work we were actually dealing with audio video and a speech i mean i mean and text so uh, in in terms of the speech modality there was there's, there's a lot of insights that we get from the speech modality like you know pauses so sometimes we take these pauses because we are thinking sometimes we take pauses because we are um, you know nervous so there are, and and sometimes we take pauses because we wanting to hide something and and these kids have these uh, different kinds of uh, modalities in in video you capture that they're not being able to maintain eye contact uh, either they are shameful of something or you know they are hurt they are not they don't want to talk to you so there there could be several several symptoms which are actually back from the psychology literature we got that these are some of the symptoms that you have to observe these are some of the symptoms that humans observe and that's what we tried to capture in our ai model in terms of nlp there's a, there was a lot so you know uh, all the all the dialogues or the interactions that we would have with the child or we would have with the lay counselor that is sort of recorded and then you know we could do all the analysis on that so there were challenges like um, code mixing so there is a lot of language mixing that these kids do uh, they of course don't speak english and they are from different parts of india so they would have a lot of languages and then they are uh, you know they have been moving across boundaries so they have picked up multiple languages bits and pieces so even if a person is speaking in hindi which is a most popular language of india they are mixing some words of konkani some words of marathi so there is a lot of code mixing which is a which is which becomes a big challenge for nlp tasks uh, building upon them then uh, we also had uh, issues like you know um, we actually used a watson service which is called watson personality insights so all the text that we got uh, fr- from the speech to text conversion we passed it through this and it gives you very important understanding about the personality whether the person person is extrovert introvert what kind of you know uh, <clears throat> communication or different other skills 
so it gives you that full spectrum it gives you big five personality insights and and a lot more details to better understand so this kind of visualization we used in the app that we built so the lay counselor or the person or the psychologist who comes for a visit maybe very infrequently but that person can just see okay how each of the kids are behaving or how is even the lay counselor's personality you know so they can actually see that entire detail in just one visualization get all so so from the speech video and uh, text modality all of the work that we did we made it very simple on the interface it was just like few lines of text uh, that could be understandable by any non tech person so yeah, there there's a lot of background ai work that you have to definitely create they were like very deep neural networks complex to create uh, and were were very difficult because we were training with very less number of data but uh, but the overall interface is very simple so any person uh, from any background can come and understand so that that was a key thing that we kept in mind while designing fascinating i mean absolutely true like interface is kind of crucial especially if you talk about an non technical person and to make sure it's also it's just been transfer like transferred easy so the kids can also like use that information maybe one day to just like if they're old enough to check, kind of like analyze and say like, right. okay that that was my problem like got to work on that and like a it open communication kind of towards all what has been analyzed and medical sciences they they want this kind of an explainability mm -hmm. so that explanation is very important for them so yeah this is so fascinating i like i just can't believe like where the science already is and what is actually able to do what we are able to do and that you built that stuff already and i think when people hear about that there are so many more cases especially what you can do with with a model like that because not only there's child trafficking there's like many more things where we talk about depression and even in like in like in in a college kind of world where people are like in under so much pressure to like deliver all the the exams and all that like pressure that comes from society like to fulfill their job role i think there's a lot of things that can be discovered with services and tools like that where it just right. like yeah people are having issues <laughs> i think especially after a pandemic like this what we just had there might be a lot of mental problems which are just coming up now so i think that is something absolutely groundbreaking and i'm i'm thinking for for everyone listening for your work because this is absolutely fascinating yeah it's the the codes are all open source so it's all on github and uh, this is this was a paper uh, that we published in acm multimedia 2019 <clears throat> so acm multimedia 2019 there was a challenge called evec challenge we were the winners of the challenge so all the codes are out there people can go read the paper and i'll be more than happy to help anyone who wants to use the codes so yeah we're going to put that for sure in the show notes <laughs> like the github repository yeah. in every paper and also congrats on the awards like that is absolutely amazing i mean like being being able to build something like that and just doing um like great work and then also like getting the recognition to to like be like hey this is really great work you're doing it's probably like one of the biggest things a scientist also can achieve so congrats on yeah. that yeah and that this this recognition was actually you know even more meaningful because we could that entire money it was uh, 10000 us dollars that were given to the ngo for an indian ngo to get that kind of money and the the importance for them you know they have so much need for money and they have so many places that they could actually expand to with that money so that uh, made it that made the award very very satisfying so yeah 
amazing. Um, when, when we talk about AI, I think especially important is also that we talk about the diversity, about, for example, what kind of people actually work in the AI. Can you give us a little insight, like how your team was built up, like what kind of roles were there and what kind of people were working with you? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm I'm very lucky to be in an organization that uh, that actually looks out for diversity. So uh, my hiring manager was a woman, and she is now the director for IBM Research India Labs. So she she spotted me, and uh, I mean maybe my CV she spotted, and then uh, that's how I I got hired. I I got I heard this opportunity at a conference during my PhD. So I I think these days conferences are hiring spots. So uh, a lot of job opportunities land up there. And then in the team also, we had quite a number of women. So overall at a lab level, we have like 20% women. And I know that number is still low, but uh, we are in a constant drive to get more, more women. And, and there's an importance here that I would like to stress. It's not like a choice that we don't hire women versus men. It's that in the pool of researchers that you get like at least a post master or a post PhD person, the pool shrinks, you know, you have a lot of people at bachelor's or engineering level, and then the pool just shrinks. And when you look, go back and you want to hire scientists who have done PhD or are doing PhD, you land up with too few women. And then you have to, and out of that, you know, there would be very few in computer science or very few who are from the tech background. And the number is really, really small. So that's, that's not the right thing that we realize. Yeah. Why do you think this is the reason? Like, why do you think there's so many dropouts after a PhD? I mean, like, you just did your PhD. Like, why do you think yeah. a lot of people are not pursuing a career after? So, you know, this is uh, this is not this is something that I have observed, and I keep saying this back. So, there are two things that people should always do. One is prioritize, and specifically for women, not be guilty. You know, I have seen people, uh, I have, a, I give this example quite often that during my PhD, I've seen a person who was seven years through her PhD and she's a very, very good student. She had teaching experience prior PhD and uh, she, she was through seven years and seventh year she had to drop. So she had a personal issue and her husband met with an accident in, in career. Her PhD supervisors were giving her, asking her to extend for two more years or to do a re-registration and all of that. And she had to choose. And at that point of time, she chose to give up her PhD. Mm. So it could have worked otherwise if she had more help at home and she would have communicated it better. Or, or there could be several ways to help her at that point of time. But she had to prioritize. So it's all about prioritizing. But what I constantly tell people is, you know, if you prioritize, I've seen women, they prioritize X and then they feel guilty about Y. They said, don't feel guilty about why, even if you have prioritized At that point of time, what you did was the best you could do. So stop being guilty about what you couldn't do. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who, who drop out due to these personal reasons. You know, our biological clock starts ticking at that particular age when we are nearing PhD. So there's a huge amount of pressure from your homes and from your society around us that, you know, you should have, you have to get married, you have to have kids, you have to do this, you have to do that. And then personally, you have been building your, on your career, you've gone that far doing PhD, that you really want to set your career at that pace. You can't do both together. So people take calls. And it's okay. I, I would say there is, it's okay to give yourself some more time, take your career off, and then maybe come back to family, or do whatever you are happy with. But I strongly feel that, you know, these people, if they had more support at home, 
if if we could tell them that you know i'll take care of your family you go ahead and take care of your work i think then they would not have to do dropouts that's what happens to men right so if you see in phd men dropping out versus women dropping out we know how the numbers are right so what what does the man have extra they have someone to help them versus for the woman they don't have and it's not always just the spouse it's it's about the entire uh, you know your surrounding support system so anyone can go out and support you i think we can we can save these women we can save these dropouts that is an important topic you're talking about because i think like i mean like even if i if i just reflect on myself how much guilt i feel for prioritizing for example my work life right now instead of making a family like that's for me just it's hard and i always like feel i feel guilty because like there's a lot of pressure coming from from the community the community like society and like what the role of a woman should be and there's there are some like stereotypes of like how you life should look like and all that stuff and like what you don't you're not married or you not have a kid yet i'm like no <laughs> i'm happy with it i'm like i'm really really happy so and it's always but i always have to explain myself like instead of like being saying like okay you don't i don't have it um but this is the reason for it that is already the wrong point like it should be just your own choice and nobody should question why you're doing something and um i mean like i know a lot of my friends who like have the same issue and i also have friends who prioritize family before getting their doctor so it's like it's really it's a mix and then i have this power woman in my friends like group who is literally doing her doctor about having two kids so this is also there are also people like that on the planet where i'm just like raising my hand because i'm like i'm done when i come home from work so i'm always like fascinated but i think yeah the point of guilt is it's sadly something that comes kind of every day of just like okay i'm choosing to eat the chocolate today <laughs> it's not the healthy meal <laughs> you know like just like i think it's something that and then coming towards the support system it's crucial like if you don't have someone who's like saying like no you got this it's going to be hell difficult yeah. so i i keep saying this you know when you talk about work life balance there's nothing like work life balance work is just a part of life right you imagine that venn diagram life is the entire thing work comes as a part your family comes as another part and every day these priorities would change right you know some days your family would be more important you have to give more time to that some days your work would take up all your time and it's okay it's absolutely okay decide when the day, in the in the morning of the day or you know just one day before at night when you go off you decide that okay this is how my day should look like and you communicate you communicate to your family or you communicate to whoever or or your managers or your teams and you just tell them that okay today i have to be i have to take care of this 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 and but i'll i i know that i have the other works that i'll not be able to take care i'm going to go back at night and do that you know, you, you can manage that ways and and i'm sure you know no bosses no family no one gets offended it's just we women who love being guilty you know um a man in our same place would not have been that guilty as we women are and and i i am guilty too for several things but uh, this is some this is a very good advice that you know i i got and i keep passing it to others that you know guilt is a woman's worst enemy yeah. oh god like we got to write that down stop being guilty it's okay absolutely absolutely yeah. uh, my my father used to tell me um kim 
work and life is a marathon and you never start with a sprint. Like you never sprint even in between. You got to find your rhythm and you got to like follow it. And I also think that was one of like a good, just like kind of saying, I got to try to keep in my mind that like, even if a day doesn't work as I planned and I didn't achieve my goals, it's okay to not be guilty. So <laughs> Yeah. I love that. Oh. Um, so that was like, like looking back, was that one of the, the best advices you ever gotten? I think I've been very lucky, Kim. I've been very lucky to, you know, meet a lot of amazing people, get amazing advices, sometime on time, sometime before, uh, sometimes just immediately after I have done a blunder. <laughs> or, or maybe, you know, sometimes before I have, I could have done bigger blunders. So I, um, I, I actually visited... Uh, as a young scientist, I got this opportunity in 2018 to visit Global Young Scientist Summit at Singapore. And there I was sharing tables with Nobel laureates. Okay, And then this person, a Nobel laureate in physics, he, he pulls out his Nobel medal and he asked me to hold it. And I'm nervous. And I'm nervous. I'm very nervous. And I, I said, I can't hold it. It's, it's your Nobel Prize. And he says, it will remain my Nobel Prize even if you hold it. But at the moment you hold it, you are going to start a dream and <clears throat> I'm sure you'll chase that dream and you'll do better. Oh. So it's very important to have that kind of a very, very high dream, no matter where you land, but you dreamt that high. So, you know, the leaps that you took were that big. And if you have taken big leaps, you will fail. But, uh, you know, learn from the failures, keep walking the most important thing is to just continue walking and not be, you know, sad about the failures that come in your way. So I, th I, I you know, I, I couldn't say anything when he suddenly and it was out of nowhere. I did not have asked him to give me an advice or something like that. I just was sitting there and he realized that I'm not being able to talk because I'm surrounded by too many Nobel Prize winners. I'm just I'm just way too overwhelmed and I can't talk. And he did this. And after that, I realized that I could talk. I could talk to people. I felt that these people are there to talk to us. They are here to inspire us. And this, this particular advice will stay with me that, you know, dream that high, take big leaps, no matter how many times you fail, keep walking, you know. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. And I'm, I would be like saying like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. But it's yeah. beautiful. Also like deep and like a like a guidance too, kind of like just like I said, like yeah, trust yourself. You got this. And like, it took time for me to absorb what he said, and I think I I'm I'm still absorbing parts of it. I still keep I I get disheartened and failures, but I try to remember these words, and I think that okay, no, it, it, everyone has failed in their lives, and they move on. In the longer picture, will you remember this failure as something important, or maybe you will not even talk about it. You'll just forget it. So why react now so much? You know, why waste tears? Just move on, move on. I keep saying myself, I'm still struggling. I'm still trying to learn, but yeah. I mean, that's that's the other side of the importance of learning, right? You, you, there's like nothing you ever achieved that, oh, like it's it's hard. You just like a, the whole life is an experience of learning and you got to like just keep educating yourself, expanding your knowledge and all that stuff. So it is a really deep advice, honestly. I'm like, ooh, I'm like kind of like shocked. Um, no, but it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, do you want to take us on a little tour and tell us a little bit about your day-by-day workday at the IBM Research Center in Bangalore? Yeah, I, yeah. so our, our days are 
pretty simple so we have our calendars with a couple of meetings so we generally meet our teams regularly so sometimes daily sometimes maybe on alternate days which is like you know each of us present whatever we have been doing we have our set goals we we discuss we take part in the other person's work so we understand what the other person has been doing we can give them feedback they give us feedback so it's a very interesting discussion so that's one hour of the day uh, i generally take uh, out you know mornings for my own reading uh, specifically friday afternoon and other days morning is my own reading time because we read a lot of research papers and we always there's a lot of work in ai it's very very fast paced you know there's plenty of conferences happening out there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of interesting research and if you don't learn that fast you know you're going to be left out very soon so you do have to do a lot of reading and then uh, yes we have a couple of meetings we do our own coding and uh, sometimes we are on deadlines we are writing our research papers or sometimes it's just the business development the product uh, that you're contributing to you're just working on them yeah fascinating like what is your where do you go for yourself besides the research paper to go learn um so a couple of sources so yeah so actually archive is a very good place to read research papers so almost all research papers you'll get there you'll sometimes get there um the papers which have not been published or which are like three months after they'll be published and they're they're already there on archive so you keep following them i do keep following the conferences even though this year i'm not traveling anywhere or last year we have not we haven't traveled anywhere but i do keep following the conferences i just glance through them actually covid has done a good part that all the conference the entire thing is out for everyone so all the recordings are available you can take your time whenever you want to you can read or hear someone's presentation so that's good and i i do follow uh, you know some people uh, some people of of uh, my area and great people great work they're doing on twitter and linkedin so people uh, these days use a lot of social media so as soon as their paper they have done some good work they'll they'll just post it on uh, twitter and or they'll just instantly tweet the link of their paper so you can go there and read the paper even though they have not even submitted somewhere or they have just submitted or it's just accepted or some and it's not yet public you get to have a glimpse of all the paper looks like you people are open sourcing their code so yeah it's a it's a lot of reading material that you get yeah do you want to name some of the people you follow uh yeah i follow a lot of people uh, but in ai i think uh, you you want to follow these big shots uh, like yan lekun and uh, yoshua benjio and then you follow their students their current postdocs their previous postdocs uh, it depends upon what area you're working but you really want to follow a lot of people there yeah <laughs> I do I do follow a lot of people probably but yeah they're they're great people to work that's a good that's a good tip follow the students yeah. because they're doing yeah. the next big things <laughs> that's good to exactly. know yeah 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 they 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 are probably the first authors of several papers and they know most about that work even though the professor would be involved in that paper they would not even know much about the work but if you want to really have an understanding about the code Uh, you got to mail that first author guy <laughs> so so catch that student and talk to him and they will be always available so um i i know a lot of people who had now very big shots but they were um like one person just to name alex graves he was doing his phd when i joined phd he was completing his phd yeah. and i had a lot of interaction with him he was the person who made long short term memory like these famous lstm networks today 
and um, I I could actually interact with him at that time. There was no TensorFlow, there was no PyTorch. It was all C plus plus coding, and he had uh, created all the, everything on C plus plus, and I worked on those. So um, so it, it was a great guidance, you know. It just it was before 2012, so that time there was no big thing about deep learning. Yeah. And uh, you had to convince your I like I had to convince my professor that I want to work in deep learning, but uh, it was a it was a great thing to do. So yeah. So the, when when this person is a student, they are going to respond to you. So you should definitely definitely work. Yeah. I will. I love that you mentioned like the quick changes. I mean, like it's so hard to keep up what everybody is inventing and what's actually possible. I mean, you know, our colleague Yung Yao, who's like really working hardcore on the newest NLP stuff and is an absolutely amazing human being of like invention. And it's so fun to like also know that you have contact with her and you actually really work closely, yes. literally from San Francisco to Bangalore in a contact, yeah. which is also so cool. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So Yuniao is uh, Yuniao is a challenge lead in one of the challenges I work on. So you know, it's it's a uh, we in research we are actually collaborating with a lot of labs. So we work very closely. And uh, in fact, uh, when I was supposed to be interviewed by you, I I, I had saw that uh, you know she has been already featured, and I pinged her, and we spoke about your interview as well. So yeah, it's it's a small world, and she's an excellent person. She's a uh, she's a great researcher and has a lot of inventions and has been doing fantastic work in NLP. So yeah. That's so cool. Um, I do have a question, like now coming up with Yun Yao and, and you, especially uh, working on your um, like pro uh, project with uh, child trafficking. How difficult was it to bring all the dialects in? Like, I mean, like you mentioned it, right? And especially in India, you have so many different lang languages and dialects. Like, what was the, the, the challenge to just like bring that in? It's like. Yeah, so actually, challenges at several levels, starting from translation. So you know because all of this was in speech we had a lot of challenges in translation in understanding that this language is not uh, i mean there was um, both language detection uh, errors then there was language translation errors even uh, once we have the translated uh, speech uh, i mean speech into text then uh, the nlp tasks were challenging because there was a lot of things that we were developing only for hindi and if this particular sentence has too many uh, Konkani or Marathi words that were actually quite popular in the data set that we started working on, uh, then our models would have very low results. So we had to go back manually, you know, uh, create the data. Like we used to hear the speeches and verbatim type and create annotated data sets. So, uh, so it, it's it's not like always very fantasizing that a scientist has, gets to do all the cool job. We do do the grunt job as well. And it's very important. The data is very, very important for the models. And if your model has to do good, you have to invest time on your data. So all the data annotation work that we do was also very, very critical. So uh, we did spend a lot of time on the data. In, in speech, the dialect is even more a concern while doing speech processing. And interestingly, we had a slight different route that we took. We rather, in, for the speech angle, we just focused on the audio features and not on the actual words spoken. Because we thought that, you know, we had better NLP models, who was do, which was doing actually much better than the speech model. So rather than focusing on the spoken utterances, we went back to the words because we had translated them manually. 
So there we were doing a perfect job on on understanding the content, summarization, doing topic modeling, and a lot of things we had to do just to understand that whether this person is talking about what kind of content, you know, a, a person not feeling well versus a person. um wanting to end their lives so we had to had that dist- distinction so that all that we uh, let it do on the nlp side of things and in the audio side of things we just focused on the audio signal the emphasis the tone uh, the particular emphasis that people give on some words the and, and pauses as i mentioned was a very very important feature the length of the pause the duration of the pause type of the pause why they are ta- taking pause is the pause with some deep breathing Mm-hmm. you know is there like deep exhalations that has different indications completely from the psychology world so the domain knowledge we had to interface it we are always had to keep in mind while designing the system and then on top of these we build these attention networks so what it does is you have these nlp features and you have an attention network on, on the nlp so you get to know what are the most important nlp features or what what part of the sentence is my model attending to to understand that you know this is this type of a case so maybe the entire sentence is not important just a few words here and there or just small phrases that gives an ind- indication that this might be a high severity of depression right in the same way we had it for uh, the spe- uh, speech and the video and then we had an attention layer on top of the three modalities just to show that for this particular person or for this particular uh, test utterance uh, highest attention was given to speech modality then the next was given to text and the probably the next was given to video and then within speech modality these were important features within speech modality so attention helped us you know understand what features are best for the networks and the network learns in it in that fashion fascinating yeah. um where is was the team itself like full of also from psychologists like just like to get the the knowledge side in of depression and suicidal thoughts yes. Yeah. yes so actually the team was very small so we just had two researchers both from IBM India research labs we had a couple of people who but who joined and left us so only two researchers that were left finally in this work and from the ngo side we had a psychiatrist uh, she was a doctor in um, harvard and she was working in mumbai at that time to work with this particular ngo so there was only this one psychiatrist and now we have a psychologist at board so the psychiatrist she used to give us all the domain information mm-hmm. and then she and the psychologist would do all the interviews so when when they do the interviews they are the humans there they see what is the machine giving and then they can tally us so they were doing all the ground truth uh, for us because that's very important you know to understand that whether the model prediction is something that is going according to the psychologist or not they were the ones who gave us this initial data as well they annotated it with us from their point of view they gave us this important feedbacks that what your algorithm needs to learn and what it is m- missing so so yeah we we did a lot of uh, testing across i think five homes uh, yeah. where they took where they conducted these interviews and we would just record they would send us the recordings and and we would process and send them back so yeah um how did you de- dealt with bias in in like specifically that kind of way yeah so so there there uh, for the lay counselor selection where we are trying to predict that the emotional intelligence thing so uh, we were just trying to give a gradation we were not saying that okay this person has a emotional intelligence level of 5 versus this person doing 4 it's very very difficult because we had a batch of qualities that we were trying to predict and the overall thing would be an indicator of the emotional intelligence so what we did is given a population we had to grade them mm-hmm. now for 
for the psychologist actually gave a, I mean this, this person gave this uh, feedback to us that whenever we uh, we as psychologists or clinicians we interview someone as soon as the person enters the room we have this kind of idea whether this person is like this or like that that helps us you know so biases are not always bad biases help us take faster judgments now how would you avoid that in a machine learning algorithm now if you had all the data annotated from one person then all the bias that this person has comes into your picture for sure so what we did is we we had multiple people multiple kind of annotators we panned it across so we asked these guys to give it to other clinicians and psychologists and psychiatrists they know and then we took all of their data all of their annotations we took what is like out of five people what is the top or whichever gets the maximum max kind of max max pooling and that's the data we tried to use it's not still i would not say it's completely unbiased it's still that these five people's biases somehow get into your picture but uh, with very limited data when we started this was what we thought of you know uh, just to be safer side yeah yeah fascinating um do you have numbers of how many times it got used now your service uh yeah so i don't have exact numbers but i think it's being used in seven childcare institutions so several interviews <clears throat> i think to hire this one person they do 25 to 30 people interviewing so every time it gets uh, used and now in the seven childcare institutions they are finally using it i mean they are having these people who have been interviewed using the tool they have found it useful and then they do this training so they they uh, interview you hire you then they ask you to go for like six months or six weeks training yeah after after the six weeks training you are again through that test so just to see that whether your emotional intelligence was increased or not there was no change so yeah it's being used yeah Right. I'm I'm glad that people are finding it useful. Yeah, it's amazing. What would be your absolute goal of the solution? What is like the thing that you think that's what I want to achieve with it? Wait, you muted. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So my so 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 the goal that we wanted to start with is is really hard. So the reason why a lot of people are into the space of rescuing children is because they can rescue one child and they can say okay i have one number it's an easy metric okay you rescue 10 children you say you go back to the government and say i rescued 10 now what happens is on this side of the story what we are trying to do is we are trying to say that we want to improve the mental health of these children mm-hmm. and that's hard that's hard because there is no such metric so over the years you have to show in the next 5 years or next few years that this person is actually doing well or is getting absorbed in the society this person is not committed suicide or this person has not left hope this person has not gone back to trafficking world so it's really hard to prove your metrics on this kind of a problem but i that's that's kind of final goal i want to see that you know we have been able to protect this one child uh, who, for whom even if it's a false positive positive but we have said that you know this, this person has a severe level of depression and we immediately got that person attention and it, god forbid we can save a life like, you know i don't want i i just want to minimize the suicide attempts and uh, the implications of mental health globally so yeah for sure for sure ah oh, yeah fingers crossed it is a great solution so i have my hopes up that actually like many more countries are using it i mean we have similar problems 
in in Vietnam and in Cambodia. There's like a lot of things happening there too, which also no one is really talking about. And um, it's been really bad for a couple of years now, for like a long time. And yeah. it's something there needs to be more awareness and this topic needs to be actually talked about because a lot of times I think you're struggling or like the society struggling with talking about it and then also financing it. Because if just imagine if you get all the research material and all the reach, like all the financing for it, it would be on a high, on a very higher scale uh, or scale at all. And you can maybe like include even more research um, capabilities. So there's a lot of things that needs to change just like as an overall awareness of the, that these problems are real and a lot of people and a lot of kids are affected by it which is which are, which are our future so i'm so yeah. thankful for you for doing this <laughs> thank you um just to get like a little bit uh, change of topics uh where do you think the um, ai is gonna develop in the next year like as an overall prediction <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I don't know if I'm the right person. There are a lot of people who are predicting a lot of things like, you know, there's a lot of word about self-driving cars. So I don't believe in that, at least in the very near term future. But uh, I, I think uh, if AI can impact in um, healthcare supply chain, uh, I think that's that's what uh, that, that's where we'll see a huge impact. And I wish we see a lot of impact in global warming and in societal impact. Full, you know, in, in, impact of AI in societal problems is what I would uh, want AI researchers to do, uh, including myself. But yes, AI has a lot of future into medical, into supply chain, um, into hybrid cloud. So there, there is there are very very interesting use cases, and there's a lot of need for AI. So I. I know a lot of people are driving such huge forces, so there will be a huge amount of change. I hope so too. <laughs> like, what? Why do you mean? Uh, why do you say uh, electric cars or like the Tesla won't be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that it's not. It's it's definitely in future. It's not immediate future. Yeah. I I you know as an AI scientist, if you ask, I think I think this would be common across several AI people. So people just keep on asking that, you know, do you think that it, AI would be used in weapons? AI would be used uh, in self-driving cars? AI would be used for all bad applications? And we keep saying that, you know, as responsible AI researchers, we want to do what is good. We, we understand what is good and we want to do that. So I, if I say self-driving cars, I would say self-driving cars are very good for countries which have those kinds of regulations. Uh, for a country like India, self-driving cars is not in the near future. <laughs> but uh, should we focus on it? Yes, we should. Uh, where should we focus if it's automobile uh, sector? Where should we focus the most? Maybe electric cars. And a lot of governments have actually uh, committed to it that electric cars will be there by 2030. Like UK has said 2030. A lot of countries are coming up and saying, setting deadlines uh, for electric cars. I think that's where we should head. And uh, whatever as AI scientists we could do uh, to you know, spearhead and understand that there is a need, there's a huge natural resource depletion that we are causing and we should move to electric cars. Um, that, that's a better place to go. Yeah, I like that approach too. Instead of like forcing, yeah, they think the Netherlands are doing it quite clever. They they like change the taxes on how much you have to give for the car. And I think the taxes on um, an electronic car is 
like minimal. That's why all yeah. the taxis actually in the Netherlands are Teslas. <laughs> almost yeah. all. Yeah. So that's kind of like a clever approach and just like say like, okay, this is what we give you. Obviously it will help us in the long term. So we gotta like, kind of play it cool. Yeah, it's, it, it has to be from, you know, from from the top down and the bottom up. So it has to go both sides. So the policymakers understanding this and reciprocating it in ways uh, will influence the car manufacturers and then that will go back to the AI researchers. So yeah, there's, there's definitely- There are way better ways to, to do that than now. <laughs> um, if someone, for example, is listening who wants to become a scientist, a research scientist, what is like some advices you would give them to kind of start their career? So if you want to be a research scientist, uh, the first thing that I would say is, uh, although not every field, a computer scientist probably, I would say that, you know, you need to do, uh, need, need to learn coding. So, um, but not, may, maybe it's not true for every field today, but if coding is a skill that you can pick up and uh, you can learn, you can probably excel in all fields. So, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about quantum, as I was mentioning you. I, I really want to learn a lot of things in quantum. And today, quantum has a lot of applications into physics and chemistry. So I, I meet a lot of people who are actually physicists or chemist, chemistry background, and they have done their uh, PhD in that. And they are now coding. So they find uh, they, they try to find an easier platform or a simpler language, like uh, Python, which is like basic English kind of uh, coding. So so coding is a skill that, you know, you, you hypothesize, you think about some experiments, and then you can actually bring them to reality. You can do all these simulations and, and, and come up to an optimized thing. So the people who are doing these wet lab experiments, they can actually go back after doing the simulation so that their search space from this has reduced to this now and in this global pandemic situation i think something that's very relevant is uh, drug discovery right so you have so many items so many uh, you know chemical compounds and possibly their combinations could have helped uh, covid-19 so what are the entire sp space that you want to work in so the the good part or a better way to deal with it is do all these simulations so that's that's what at ibm the supercomputer did it ran massive simulations around 8000 compounds and then when you, you you come down to that, okay, these are the 65 compounds or their combinations that you have to actually work with. Now, given a chemist, 8,000 compounds to experiment and given 65 compounds, you know how you impact this chemist's life, right? You make their search space so reduced. So every profession probably they should go uh, and, and they should try to learn coding. Mm -hmm. At least science research scientists, I would say, you know, they should, they should go back and uh, do a lot of coding. And, uh, it, and if it's AI, then definitely coding. So, yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, like coding is is crucial. But I also think like if you want to be in AI and you don't want to be in the coding, you can still help with like just yeah. the, the if you want to be a designer, for example, right? How many AI services been like rebuilt? Especially like you mentioned by yourself, you need dashboards. Like somehow we got to portray and visualize it, right? So there's Absolutely. so many things and. I feel like that's the, the absolute beauty of AI that we have that opportunity that everyone will find a role in it. <laughs> I guess exactly. a role for exactly. everyone. That's Absolutely. like the greatest thing. We have, for example, one of my colleagues has a doctor in physics and is now one of the best sellers we have here in, in, in Germany, which is also hilarious because like, if you think about it, right, coming from the, from the physics side and now becoming on such a good seller because he has, he has the ability to, to like, bring the, the, the technology part into a normal conversation so people understand 
what it actually means if you don't have a non-technical background. So I think Absolutely. there are so many beautiful things that, that are... Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you don't have to be a researcher to be into AI. That's that's yeah. that's the best part. So if you understand AI and, and not everyone needs to build algorithms, right, then who will use it? So we really want people to come from these domains, understand what we are building, go back and be able to do that for the other person. There, there's a huge importance that sales guys could bring in, as you mentioned, right? So if we are building something, they know best to target audience, to pitch it to them. They know their pain points, right? And then they can appreciate, okay, this particular algorithm can actually do these, 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 these kind of things. And then they can go back and, you know, sell it in the appropriate way and have, so, so this, the, this entire life cycle is important because we want more users to understand that their problem can be solved by AI. It, it always will not happen the other way, right? I have a problem. I'll, I'll probably not even know that, okay, which algorithm can help me. I want AI to help, but I don't know what can help me. So these people who have knowledge of AI and also knowledge of the domain, uh, who are, you know, into sales, marketing, and there are a lot of application people. You know, you yourself, you know, you guys are doing a fantastic job in building these applications and taking it back to businesses. So we really need more and more people. And, and uh you know, these days, killing into AI is not is not. Uh, you you don't need to do a PhD. You don't need to do a master's. You can you can just uh, you know learn the different algorithms. It's it's pretty simple. So you just start with a maybe a basic machine learning course from Coursera. There are very interesting courses by Andrew Ng. Uh, very, very popular. I know 45 million or so people register that course. There are very good courses in deep learning. So you take up a course, you enjoy that course. There's so much of, uh, you know, uh, notebooks that they are assignments that they do, projects that they do. Yeah. So it definitely is a great way to, you know, quickly upskill yourself and get into AI. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. Fascinating. Like the variety of people you meet in this industry is it's kind of ridiculous. Like if you think about it, like you meet people from, from San Francisco, yeah, yourself, right? You like go there, you, you meet Nobel Prize winners and like you like meet the, the most amazing characters and like the most, also like most helpful people. Because I think like even if AI is such a big word, everyone who I met so far who works in a topic is like, so open to share information so open to just like sit down and have a discussion about the future and like technology and all that stuff so it is in that kind of way a small but big community so that makes sense because like right we are not that many especially if you talk about the women in it um, but every everyone i met so far is absolutely fascinating in what they do and like the nicest human beings as well and like open to share the knowledge they have so that is one of the best things about it mm. one more question for you because today we're not going to ask about the favorite app so we're going to ask about the favorite book which i love actually and it's like a such a nice change of it so what would you say is your favorite book i have a lot of books that i would name but you know, because it is a woman in AI, I would actually mention two books. So Sheryl Sandberg, uh, she wrote, the first book was Lean In. And it, it's an amazing read. Uh, for, ev for every line, I could relate to the problems that I have faced or the problems that I have. And uh, this is these are the two books, Lean In and Option B, that I would say every woman should read, no matter you are in AI or you are in whichever technical, non-technical professions that you are doing. But it gives you that kind of understanding what you should do, and you know uh, it doesn't it doesn't talk about what others should do. 
it talks about what you should change within yourself to you know build yourself what, what there is we know about the gender issues right and across geographies it's the same so what are the things that you should definitely do uh, and and build your own self yeah. you know in terms of be be resilience building or you know making your partners your real partners i think those two books were amazing books uh, that i read Awesome. Gonna put those in the show notes. One more <laughs> question: How's the best way to reach you? Uh, you can reach me over LinkedIn. I'm I'm very very active on LinkedIn. I'm not very active on Twitter. I generally just follow people and use it for my own reading. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can Slack me. You can email me. Everything works. <laughs> I'm pretty responsive. I feel so. <laughs> I love talking to people. So yeah. I love that. Never change. Okay, never change. That is amazing. Well, thank you so much for this interview. And I mean, it's been it's been absolute pleasure to get to know you and like have you here on the Woman in AI initiative. And I'm looking forward to just like share your knowledge, share your story, and hope to see you soon. I guess <laughs> so. That's like the biggest wish, obviously, to like and one day get all the interview partners together and have a big panel discussion somewhere in the world. So I'm still trying yeah. to get IBM funding for that. <laughs> Hopefully one day we will get there and just say we can bring them all together and create a bigger community and platform. So thank you so much thanks. for being part of this. Thanks. thanks Kim for having me here for you know featuring me here and and you know I should I should thank you more for starting this initiative. We uh, we go back and uh, teach at different places, and we keep hearing this that you know uh, there is not enough women role models. <coughs> Sorry, not just in not just in AI, but we keep hearing this that there are not enough women role models in senior management or in AI or in this or in that. So creating there there are enough women in even if not enough women, there are plenty of women in AI, and. you creating this initiative bringing them together giving people a chance to hear their struggles or you know when they have not been perfect or what they have done how they have learned that's that's a great initiative i know it takes a lot of your time and it takes a lot of your efforts but hats off to you for pulling it off apart from your day job i i, I know it's also a lot of work but thanks for doing this thank you uh, for your kind words that means a lot to me uh I hope I can do it forever because it is a lot of fun I have to say. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Have a fantastic day and bye bye. All the best. Bye.